0: This is Health Dose, a conversational podcast that focuses on your health and well-being. I'm Terry O'Donnell. When it comes to your mental health, some people do well with occasional visits to a therapist. Others may need outright hospitalization. But there is a middle ground. Michelle Lucchese is a therapist at MidMichigan Medical Center Gratiot's Psychiatric Partial Hospitalization Program. For 25 years, the Psychiatric Partial Hospitalization Program at Mid-Michigan Medical Center Gratiot has provided an intensive therapeutic outpatient day program for patients. Help those. ask Michelle, how do you describe the Partial Program?
1: The Partial Program is an intensive outpatient program, a day program for mental health services. We treat a lot of depression, anxiety, and we have our people come every morning, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., and they stay until 3 o'clock, when they can go home and sleep in their own bed and practice the new coping skills that they're learning.
0: Is it the idea that people do better when they're working both in a clinical setting to work on their issues as well as practicing those skills in the real world?
1: That's definitely part of it. It's also, it's kind of the in-between between an inpatient stay and a traditional outpatient So to be admitted onto an inpatient stay, you have to meet certain criteria as far as needing safety to yourself or others or being a danger to yourself or others. And we're trusting that people can take care of themselves. They're not in imminent danger of hurting themselves or others. So it's more appropriate for them to come to the partial program and then be able to use those skills right away. It's a matter both of not being in as much crisis, but also having a chance to practice the skills at night in the real world.
0: And how is this different from other types of treatments that you may offer?
1: It's one of the levels of care. The inpatient is for those people who are in imminent danger and need a safe place 24-7. The traditional outpatient is for the people who only need like one day a week outpatient for an hour. So we're kind of in that middle ground where People need more than an outpatient once a week, but they aren't in imminent danger of hurting themselves. This includes people who may have suicidal thoughts but don't have any imminent plans, don't have any intention, but their level of functioning isn't as high as it traditionally is or should be. Like they might be having difficulty functioning at work, they're missing a lot of work, they might be missing their college classes and they're not able to function as they want to be able to function. So we're kind of that middle ground between the inpatient twenty-four-seven and the once a week. That's the primary, one of the primary difference. The other difference is the fact that we are a group setting. The inpatient setting does have some group therapy, but it is primarily about the individual and getting the individual ready for discharge. It's a very short stay. Average length of stay, I think, is three to four days on the inpatient unit. Here, our primary mode of intervention is a group setting. So we have between two and 10 people. They have group therapy sessions every day. Two 90 minute sessions and two education sessions that are 45 or 60 minutes long. So it's intensely based on the group therapy experience, though there are individual, there's an individual attention also.
0: What's the value of group therapy?
1: Oh, golly, I'm glad you asked that people who haven't experienced it don't understand the power of group therapy. I mean, when you introduce the idea of group therapy to people, they're always frightened by it. They're always say, I don't think I can talk in front of a group. But everybody feels that at first. But once they experience the power of group therapy, they're changed completely, usually by the end of the first day, honestly. So one of the powers is the idea that I'm not alone. There are other people who are also struggling with similar issues. There are other people who've gone through what I've gone through. And that is... Is such a powerful thing that you just can't get in individual therapy. And another element is the helping other people. So it's not just, you know, they know what I'm going through, but I actually can help them. And that does a couple of things for us. One of the things it does is it gives us this sense of purpose when we can help somebody else. But it also takes away the time that we normally spend in our own negative thoughts. So it's kind of like giving our brain a vacation from our own negative thoughts. When we reach out to other people and we're focusing on somebody else and we're trying to help them, it gives our brain a break. So that's another one of those very powerful group experiences. It's really a fabulous intervention. It's a way of connecting with people and harnessing the power of social connection in a very therapeutic
0: way. I think, unfortunately, I am in the group of Americans whose opinion of group therapy has been skewed by Hollywood, where there's always the same cast of characters in that group therapy session. There's the one person who won't talk, the one person who downplays everybody else's problems. It's really quite a different setting than what we've been exposed to
1: absolutely you just don't have that cast of characters you just don't in reality the people who come in are are very varied that's true there's a lot of variety we have people all the way from 18 years old, all the way up to their 70s, and even into the 80s, we've had. So you get a wide variety of age ranges, we get a wide variety of disabilities, we get a wide variety of different diagnoses. And it's amazing how people connect. Let me tell you a story, a real story that happened here just this last year. We had a group of about four people, one of which was a transgendered female. She was young, probably I think 23 or something. And she had just recently completed the transition and she had been rejected by her family. So she was going through a lot of depression and was kind of traumatized by that. She had been here for probably six or seven days and was only had a few days left. When we admitted a older gentleman who was a construction worker, fits the stereotype of the construction worker was rather macho and tough and was very anxious about joining a group and very anxious about talking about emotions because you know that's one of the masculine stereotypes is you can't talk about emotions. On his first day here he joined a group in the afternoon after doing the intake which is our standard process and met that transgendered female. He was very quiet his first day and said basically nothing until the very end when he turned to that transgendered girl and said, you inspire me, you are so brave to be yourself to do what you have to do to be yourself. And I am just so impressed by you. And there came this bond between the two of them. I think she was only here for one more day, and then was discharged. And he kept asking, man, I wonder what happened to her. Did she meet with her parents? And did, did they accept her? And I know, how is she doing? He kept wondering how she was doing because that connection was so strong just in two days you would never imagine that the two of them would have bonded like that because they were so different but they did and that's one of the powers of the group setting
0: yeah is the power of the group setting the randomness of bringing people together i mean therapists don't try to build a group dynamic based on who might need what
1: true group dynamics happen automatically it's organic we don't have much control over it, though we do have some control over behaviors that might interfere with the group dynamic. Like if somebody tries to monopolize the group and they're talking too much, that can interfere with the group dynamic. And as a therapist, it's my job to kind of gently guide the conversation to include more people and to reduce that monopolizing of the conversation. If somebody speaks out of turn and is kind of harsh or mean to somebody, it's my job to correct that and to kind of do the damage control. And to, But we do a lot of that preemptively, actually, because in the intake process, we have a long list of guidelines that our nurse goes through with each patient upon entrance. And we talk about the confidentiality of the group. We talk about that some of those group dynamics. And and honestly, it's very rare that we have somebody who is truly interrupting the group dynamics. Everybody tends to contribute positively to the group dynamics.
0: What's the tipping point for a patient where you know that they're not going to be able to use just the 45 minutes or an hour a week? How do you know that they need that extra help where they're actually in your group setting or in your clinical setting during the day?
1: We work with a lot of doctors and therapists who, when a patient comes to their office and they do the assessment to say, okay, are they safe to wait a week to come back? One of the things that they're looking for is, can this person come up with a safety plan can they guarantee that they're going to use this safety plan to keep themselves safe if a therapist or a doctor is afraid that the person's going to decompensate before their next visit and might end up in the emergency room it might become suicidal might in some way endanger themselves or others that would be an appropriate referral. It's a clinical judgment on the part of the therapist and the doctor in the outpatient setting, or perhaps family members at home, where if you don't feel safe, you feel like this person is quote unquote falling apart, and they feel like they're not going to make it, that's an appropriate referral. And they can always refer people to the nearest emergency room where they can get a psychiatric assessment done. And that psychiatric assessment in the emergency room, the professional who comes down to do that assessment is assessing, does this person need inpatient care? Can they set up a safety plan for outpatient care or do they need partial in between? That's always a good option for a person who is concerned about a loved one or a client to be able to send them to the emergency room for an assessment. But they also can just call us directly. When they call us, we do a phone screen. We'll take all the information that the referral source wants to give us But then we also want to talk to the person and we do a phone screen. So we double check and make sure that our program is appropriate for them and that they are appropriate for our program when we do the phone
0: screen also. Walk me through what a patient or client is going to experience from the moment they reach your door until they're discharged. What does that day look like?
1: Okay, so the first day they will spend the morning in a one-on-one intake. Usually it's one-on-one. Occasionally we will have two people admitted at the same time and part of their morning will be two-on-one with our nurse. But they'll basically spend the morning with their intake and then they will join the group usually about lunchtime. We have a dining room here and we order food from the kitchen here at the hospital and they deliver it to us so that our clients don't even have to leave our space to have their lunch. So lunch is included. And then starting in the afternoon of that first day, they will start with a group therapy right after lunch. We have a 90 minute group therapy session and then we take a break. And then we have a wrap-up session starting at 2.15 where people set their goals for the night and talk about what they learned that day. And then starting on the second day of their stay, the first thing they do when they come in is they fill out their menu for lunch and then they find their seat in the group room and they start with our morning check-in. A 90-minute group where every person in the group gets a chance to talk about how their evening went, how their coping skills are going, any struggles they have. And they get feedback from the therapist and the other group members in regards to how they managed whatever they manage the night before. And then after the 90 minute group, there's a break. And then there's a one hour education group just before lunch. That education group, the content of it is based on what we as the staff believe the people need. We don't have a prescribed schedule of education topics. We have a whole bunch that we choose from and we choose the one that is going to be best for that particular group of people. We again have the afternoon group and then the wrap up group. And this pattern goes on for as many days as they are here. And intermixed in there, they will be pulled from the education group once or twice for an individual therapy session. And they can touch base with our nurse whenever they need to, to talk about any medical or medication concerns. They're pulled from the education group about once a week to visit with a prescriber, a doctor or a nurse practitioner, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and they get reviews of their medication and they make suggestions for changes. So they do get to see a medication prescriber once a week, but it is primarily a therapy experience.
0: And for how many days typically does this kind of program last?
1: Our average length of stay is about seven days. I like to say it's seven to 10 days because we'd like to kind of err on the side of being long (laughs) to give Mm -hmm. people extra time if needed. The actual length of stay is determined by a person's progress, and we have to call the insurance every few days to show them that they still meet criterion for our level of care, in which case they approve a few more days and we keep them for a few more days until we feel like they are no longer needing our care or until the insurance decides that they no longer need our care. Unfortunately, that happens more often than we'd like it to happen, but for the most part, they're pretty good about following our lead.
0: Who can participate in this program?
1: We take referrals from doctors and therapists, but we also take self-referrals. So anybody who believes that they are not functioning as well as they would like and they're struggling, they can call us and we will do the phone screen and see if they meet criterion. And one of the things that I think is really important here is recognizing a person does not have to have a diagnosis to call and ask for help. I think sometimes people, they believe in this myth of categorical illness. That is, the world is divided into the people who are healthy and the people who are ill. And somehow the people who are healthy don't ever need help. And I believe that is a complete myth, that we all are people and we all have struggles. And sometimes those struggles are diagnosable. Sometimes those struggles need outside assistance, and sometimes they don't. So anybody who is struggling is welcome to call and talk to us. Besides doing the phone screen to see if they're appropriate for our program, we often, Give out information for other interventions that might be more appropriate. We often give out phone numbers for outpatient clinicians if they call us and we do an interview and they're like, I don't think you meet criterion for us, but it sounds like you definitely need therapy. So here are some names and numbers that might help you. Or we might refer people to the inpatient unit. In fact, we even refer people to the inpatient unit who have already done the phone screen, and when they come to us during the intake process, they reveal themselves to be more suicidal than we originally thought, and we might refer them to the inpatient treatment. I think it's really important that people recognize that reaching out for help, it doesn't say anything about being ill or being crazy. I hate the phrase crazy. You know, it's like when people say, I'm afraid I'm going crazy. My response is there is no such thing as crazy. We're all people and we all struggle. When you think categorically about these two, either this or that, and you don't want to be a that, so you deny your struggles. That Mm -hmm. is about the worst thing that a person can do for themselves.
0: Is it fair to say mental health is the only portion of our health that people assume is either a yes or a no, not on a spectrum like every other kind of part that's of your health?
1: A, that's an interesting question on, on a couple of accounts that I'm probably not an expert in all the other medical fields to be able to make comment whether that happens in the other medical fields. <laughs> mm-hmm. but So I don't know that I can say it's the only place that it happens, but it definitely does happen in mental health. People are just not, they want to deny struggles because they think that they're going to be classified as crazy or ill. And that's simply not what we do.
0: When we are all on that spectrum.
1: Yes, we are all on the spectrum of humanity. <laughs>
0: Remind me again, what kind of issues are you set up to help with? Is it anxiety, depression, all of those?
1: Those are our primary categories. They are by far the most common. We do occasionally have somebody with a psychotic disorder like a schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, but for us to be able to treat a person with schizophrenia who's also depressed, the psychotic symptoms, the hallucinations or delusions, they have to be relatively stable to be able to participate in a group setting. Otherwise, they become very disruptive. If you think about specific types of anxiety disorders, generalized anxiety, phobias, OCD, PTSD. All of those are things that we can treat. And if you think about different types of depression, bipolar depression, unipolar depression, and grief reactions, we see lots of those also. And we even see the anxiety that sometimes people don't think of this as an anxiety disorder, and and that is somatized disorders, which is the physical manifestation of an anxiety. So people, they might know they have anxiety, but they also have irritable bowels or a nauseous stomach or ulcers, and those types of things, which of course, some of them also have medical treatments, but they are also a manifestation of anxiety. So as people learn good anxiety management tools, they can also see benefits in those physical symptoms.
0: What changes have you seen in mental health treatment? And what changes have you seen in mental health populations over the last couple of decades?
1: Well, partial program has been here for 25 years. And it's funny that I happen to have been the therapist 24 years ago here. So I was the therapist here from 96 to 98. And then I came back in 2019 as the secondary therapist. And I've been contingent here for, I don't know, 17 years in between there. I'm quite familiar with the whole program here. And one of the things that we've noticed in our program that has changed is our length of stay. The average length of stay when we first opened back in the mid-90s was like 20 days. Now it's down to seven days. And that has a lot to do with the insurance, as we were talking about earlier. Depression is depression, and people have dealt with depression for eons. But we definitely have noticed continual changes in the medication research and changes in medication regimes and how the doctors, based on the research, the doctors are using different medications, are using them differently. But I think the bigger issue is how we have grown to understand the power of lifestyle choices on our mood. That we know from basic research, we've learned that physical exercise can treat depression as well as medication, that social connectivity can treat depression as well as medication, that these types of basic lifestyle choices are vitally important for maintaining Our mental health and our stable mood sleep patterns in the last 25 years we have had major research done in how important sleep patterns are for stabilizing moods now when we're dealing with a person who struggles with bipolar disorder one of the very first things we're going to do is try to get them on a stable sleep schedule because that's so important for mood stabilization that is one of the things we focus on here a lot our primary intervention is a cognitive behavioral approach. And the cognitive side of it is to help people see how their negative and inaccurate thinking is impacting their mood and help them change it. But the behavioral side of it is to see how their behaviors are impacting their mood and then also change that. That when a person forces themselves to smile on a regular basis, they're going to start feeling better. When a person interacts with a group of friends, even if they don't feel like it. Afterwards, they're going to feel better. So there's the impact on the mood, and it's through the chemicals, the hormones in our system, that we know that a cardiac exercise increases certain hormones, that spending time with a pet increases certain hormones that make us feel better. There's all sorts of research on that chemical interaction of activities and lifestyle choices and how it directly impacts mood.
0: How does someone contact you?
1: We're located in the hospital the um, at Michigan Medical Center Gratiot in Alma and our direct phone number is 989-466-3253.
0: That is MidMichigan Medical Center therapist, Michelle Lucchese from MidMichigan Medical Center Gratiot Psychiatric Partial Hospitalization Program. Remember, if you have health concerns, the best place to start is your primary care provider. If you need help finding a primary care provider, go to midmichigan.org doctors. And for more information on MidMichigan Medical Center's Psychiatric Partial Hospitalization Program, go to midmichigan.org conditions treatments slash mental health slash outpatient care. I'm Jerry O'Donnell. Thank you so much for listening. Check back again soon for another episode of Health Dose.